Game day is pretty much what you live for. When I'm out on the field, I'm cheering for my city. Fans all around you. You feel safe. We're family. It is the hardest thing to walk away from. Game day doesn't completely make up for the fact that we work for nine months straight with no paycheck. You want me to volunteer my time so you can make money? Why would a grown woman want to be a cheerleader anyway? Show off your body. We had to stand there and do jumping jacks. Sometimes there was just nothing you could do. You're not cheering this game. They don't treat football players this way. They don't even treat mascots this way. Women work hard, and they're constantly having to say it and prove it. Football and cheerleading, I mean, nothing's more American than that. Well, unfortunately, nothing's more American than cheating workers out of an honest day pay, too. They were getting away with this, you know, putting this contract and having 40 women every year for 50 years sign this contract. Shame on you, particularly the ones who have daughters. Shame on you. Guess what? The law is bigger than you. Politicians, Hollywood, the NFL, they're losing control right now. As the lawsuit progresses, like I am fighting for women's rights, for equal pay, for equal treatment. I'm extremely proud of the women who have come forward. We are not going to stand for this anymore. Welcome to Labor Goes to the Movie with Chris and Elise. Elise, how you doing? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you? Not too bad. We can start out with our usual question as we're waiting to be joined by our guest. Uh, seeing anything good lately? I have. Oh, I saw this film. <laughs> you did. That's right. You did your homework. I did my homework, and I'm fascinated by it. Did it annoy you as much as I thought it might? Yes and no. Because I, I'll tell you why. Remember when we were in London for the Workers' Culture Conference? Mm -hmm. I went to a workshop where there was someone who was doing a film on the follow-up to Gloria Steinem's A Bunny's Tale with Playboy Bunnies. Right. And we had this whole discussion about payment and the work and how they viewed their work versus how feminists viewed their work. And so I had that lens on as well. And it was really, oh, okay. So what did that, and we can talk about it when we interview a we, but what did, how, how did that, because I know <clears throat> when, when I, I saw it, when it, it was shown at Anti Silver Docs a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And then of course we showed it last week in the Labor Film Fest and that chat blew up at least. People were just so pissed off and upset and, and what was cool about it what i like about showing films online is that you've gone to films with me i do i do not like to talk during a film when i'm sitting in the theater don't talk we can talk during the previews and all that oh, yeah. film starts x nay no nay on the talk k yeah very strict on that pretty mm -hmm. relaxed about other things and then and afterwards we will talk forever oh. you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but i have to admit that i i enjoy the folks chatting uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. with these online things. And I, I'm trying to think about why 
I think for one thing, I can choose to monitor the chat or not. So that's yes. different than somebody, that person sitting next to you who just can't shut up. And right. mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. so maybe that's one difference. But also, especially with a film like this, it's so, the, the reaction was just so visceral to watch people reacting in real time as each revelation comes out in the film. So that was kind of cool. What did they say? Because I had no chat room. So <laughs> I did ask a couple of friends who watched it the other night, okay. what did you get from it? And they were waiting for me to respond. I should go back and pull the chat. I'll just do this from memory. Mostly, and it, it was almost an entirely female audience, I should say. Well, interesting. A couple of guys. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, because of the title, A Woman's Work, you think? I was a little disappointed not to see more guys there. You would have thought that you, know, you would have thought the here, cheerleaders here. Mm -hmm. would have mm -hmm. been a draw. You know? I would have thought, yep, interesting. That's yeah, interesting. it was interesting. And then I think people were just reacting to. I think there were, frankly, and maybe this is what helped you there. There were a lot of things that they did not know, like that cheerleaders basically don't get paid, and I, so people, you know, were reacting. Oh my God, that's horrible. Or, and then they find out what they do get paid, which is so piddling. Or, and then the way that the owners who make, you know, a gazillion dollars. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I wanted to mention also, I was working on Labor History Today podcast. And yesterday was the, I think, 67th anniversary of the uh, release of Salt of the Earth. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Salt of the Earth. You know, we showed it at the National Labor College, and there was a couple of women from Croatia, I think, in the audience, or some other former communist country, who said, you call this communist? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, she was, like, she was like, That's ridiculous. This has got nothing to do with communism whatsoever. Who, who said this? Who banned this? And we're like, United States, you know, it was a time. So that's the thing that when I was doing a bit of a deep dive into it, it was banned when it was released because all the filmmakers have been blacklisted and either were communists or hung out with communists, as mm -hmm. so many folks did back then. And, and what I'd forgotten was that it was also, it was difficult to make because the uh, some right-wing congressman found out about it and six um, right-wingers on them showed up like on the set in New Mexico and mm -hmm harass them. And so it was actually difficult to make the film. It was banned across the country. Some of the union, I think the projectionist union, and remember this was the fifties. So they were throwing communists out of unions across the country. Yeah. And the projectionist refused to show it. Wow. And now it's considered one of the best American movies ever made. And this was one of the things I was thinking about and talked a little bit about on the podcast. It was also basically uh, a feminist, had a feminist analysis. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which was pretty revolutionary for the time. Esperanza. I mean, Esperanza, I, what just occurred to me is like, we could do a, a talk on female sheroes, women sheroes in film, from Esperanza to Scarlett O'Hara. You know, like, like an example of just two different women and experiences in the, as a hero central character. Well, remind folks about Esperanza because I hadn't seen it in a while. It was interesting. The, the basic story, it's a strike, a uh, minor strike, and it's Anglo miners getting together with Mexican-American miners. So there's right. that. 
But then the key is that the, the strikers are enjoined. They're told they can't pick it. It's illegal to pick it. And so the women take over the picket lines. Right. Yeah. So you should pick it up from there. With the pots and the pans. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. And I haven't seen it in a really long time. But I just remember her, that final scene. And there was something that happened to her that, that she didn't make the end of the film. So it was, uh, the film was shot with a lot of the actual miners themselves, but they did bring in this woman and I'll have to look it up. I want to say her name is Rosaria. She's a Mexican actress and she was, I believe, not allowed back in to finish the film, I think is what happened. And yeah, yeah, that was. That's worthy. That's worthy. Yeah. And then what happened was the, when the women take over the, the strike, it not only causes all kinds of problems for the bosses because they don't know how to deal with women picketers, but it also causes problems back on the home front. Right, yes. My name is Esperanza. Esperanza Quintero. I am a miner's wife. 18 years my husband has given to that mine, living half his life with dynamite and darkness. Miner wants to get his brothers out in one piece. You work alone, savvy? You can't handle a job, I'll find someone who can. Who, a scab? An American. We gotta get equality on the job. Then we'll work on these other things. Give it to the men. I see. The men. Your strike may be for your demands, but what wives want, that comes later, always later. Now, don't you start talking against the union again. All the next week, I kept thinking about my mañanita. I had never had so nice a party. It was like a sun running through my mind. La unidad de todos los hombres trabajadores. Much like any other strike, there would be no settlement, the company said, till the men returned to their jobs. Coffee. Come on, listen to me. For the love of God. You! You! I'd expect it of an Anglo, yes. Come on, I'm in but jail. You. I had to get a job. You, who the black sucker. Come on, my kids. Do! Traidora tu gente, rompe huelgas, desgraciado. You think my kids have enough to eat, you rat? I know it's wrong. Just let me go. I'll lift down. Just let me go. It's only fair if the women be allowed to vote. Especially if they have to do the job. Women who got nothing to do with the strike. Somehow they heard about the women's picket line, and they came.
run away. With Ramon, it's right. I spoke out of the bitterness in me, and he was hurt. Elise, my name is Wee. <laughs> Good to see you again. Thanks again for showing the film last week. Uh, Elise and I were just chatting about the uh, the rather vociferous reaction my labor crowd had to uh, the film. I was yeah. telling her about the, uh, the, the the chat was pretty outraged. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was great to see that. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was great to see that. I love seeing that. And. Uh, I love how people were like, wait, so what can they do? Like, where, <laughs> you know, how can we help them and stuff? So it was just like, it was great to see that. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's our, that's our crowd. At least <laughs> among other things is president of the coalition of labor union women. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to yield the, uh, the lead questions to my sister. Okay, well, thank you, Chris. And, and thank you, we, so, what inspired you to take on this subject? I, I first was, I started off as someone who was interested in football. I became a fan of football when I moved from Canada to the U.S. to Los Angeles to attend grad school at the University of Southern California. Uh -huh. um, so that was where I was first exposed to the world of football because prior to that, I grew up in Canada, uh, Vancouver, Canada, and okay. I was born okay. in China. So, you know, in Canada, there was football, but really it was eclipsed by hockey. That's what everybody oh, yeah. watched, you know. Oh, so, um, you know, when I came to the U.S. and came to grad school, I couldn't work outside of the campus because I was an international student. Um, so I took jobs around campus and I actually tutored football players in essay writing, in composition. Um, and what? I was... Yeah, it was really well paying. It was more, better paying than a lot of the other jobs. Um, and I got to see sort of the system that they were embroiled in. You know, they literally had people on golf carts, you know, uh, pushing them, like reminding them to go to class, reminding them to go to workouts, reminding them to yeah. do this. So they had, it almost felt like, you know, minders or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> And I was shocked, you know, I was tutoring a, a player and then I was shocked to see them later on, like, oh, wow, they're literally on TV. Like they're, it's like the scope of the coverage of college football, just shocking. Cause these were not, again, these were just supposedly student athletes and they were not getting paid for what they were doing. And yet mm -hmm. it was broadcast on these huge networks. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was fascinating, fascinating to me. And it, I also saw how it brought together so many people in terms of fans, like across the community. USC, you know, is a very expensive private university in a um, very kind of in an area in a neighborhood of Los Angeles that's been stricken by poverty, you know, mm -hmm 
problems mm -hmm. um, in general. And then it's just this, you know, it's a weird kind of, I, ca I guess dichotomy and clash between the university and the community around it. But through football, it really brought so many people together that would never really necessarily come together. And I became to pay, I came to pay attention to the culture of football, watching movies and watching TV shows like Friday Night Lights, any given Sunday. And then I started, and then from there, I started watching the game. And all of the things that, why people love football were true, are true for me. I, it's such an exciting game to watch. It's not just about the violence, but it's about the athletes too, the narratives of the athletes, the coaches, and the way the game is parsed out. There's such a narrative like anticipation and the possibility of having a game turn around from someone who's being so behind to come back and win. I think it just speaks to that underdog mentality that there is, and also it just speaks to the American dream. Anyone, could, if they tried hard enough, they could win. They could make it. So there's all these things that are very attracted me a lot as someone who was an immigrant who came here, who didn't, who wasn't born here. And then when I heard about Lacey's lawsuit, she sued the Oakland Raiders in 2014, alleging she was paid less than $5 an hour. That opened my eyes really to the other side of it, where cheerleaders have are icons of the football culture. And they have been also in movies and narrative around this culture for so long they've been so intrinsically a part of it and it was shocking to me that she was being so undervalued and as someone again who was born in china under the one child policy i had a, a very sort of natural understanding of sexism from a very young age because i was born a girl that was a whole thing it was not like so it, like my dad said it's not it's not so simple for a woman to be born and, and to start life. It's much easier for men or a son to be born to, in his eyes. So that was, you know, what, well, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had, again, I had an understanding of that from a very young age. And so when I came, you know, to Canada and to the U S where it's supposedly there's equality, supposedly it's, you yeah. know, democracy. Again, I wanted to interrogate that. I wanted to really examine how that actually works and why. So I decided to reach out to Lacey and ask her about her story. Wow. I wanted to sort of pick up on the, the being born in China as a girl, which I, I'll, I think you probably have a question on that, Elise. Oh, no, no, I'm right there. That's, that, that's my, that was where I was, I was like, wow, because of your age, I would have thought that things had changed in some way. You know, I was thinking, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> just, just give us a little bit more. What did you learn? What was it? Yeah. What, I heard what your father said, but how did it manifest itself in the culture as it impacted you? And how old were you when you came to the United States? So I was born in China and then I grew up there until I was seven years old. And so my dad is a visual artist. He's an artist. So I actually grew up, I was born and grew up in an art school in, in work and have art shows and everything. The prominent artists were all men and even especially the ones who were recognized by the West, whether it was the European um, art world or North American art world. Most of them were men. And so that's the world that I grew up in. And I never really saw, maybe there was like one or two women who were around, but they were almost, they were like the ones that shave their head or something, or like, they were very much like non, not necessarily like female identifying in, in a way. So it was very, I just knew from an early age that this was like visually the reality, at least of the art world. And I was very much interested in art and 
storytelling and film and again going into film and like as I went to college and started working that was very much obvious that this was a male dominated industry and even growing up that when I look back all the the directors that I loved and looked up to were also men which at the time I didn't really think about as much but as I started making my own work and looking at my inspirations I realized wow this yeah this <laughs> there's what like one or two percent of women directors in Hollywood right now it's something that I think just impacted my whole life and I think the thing that uh, was interesting to me in China specifically is like Chairman Mao he said women hold up half the sky that was his propaganda of what he wanted to convey about equality and the genders but on the other hand you see the obvious imbalance and the obvious inequality of, of that of Chinese society and culture I think that kind of duality I don't know hypocrisy or something is something that I was also really aware of and that's something that I wanted to look into in this film as well because on the one hand the cheerleaders are so glamorized and they're so publicized they're used as marketing tools basically for the, the teams and they're held up as these meeting the standard of these extreme beauty standards and held on these pedestals pedestals but at the same time they're also completely devalued and told where we can replace you at any moment like you really actually don't matter but oh also you're a part of our family yeah I, I heard that I heard that and so it's, and I think it's fascinating so you went to college to study film and fell in love with football which has got to be the most macho, male-driven testosterone festival of brute strength. That yeah, yeah. I, I, when I went to my first football game, I did. I never. We played touch football as a kids, girls and boys, when we were playing. Oh. I was growing up as a kid, but when I went to see an actual football game was when I went to college. I was just like, this is crazy stuff and the way they were uplifted as well and idolized but i didn't pay any attention to the cheerleaders whatsoever and, and because i just thought it was just fluff fluff huh but you turned them into people uh and, and i and, and call make how'd you choose the title of woman's work what what moved you to to grab that because one of the things that chris talked about is that there were few there were so few men in the audience there were few men i shouldn't say so few few men in the audience that viewed it. And I thought, well, that's interesting. It's a movie about cheerleaders. It's all about flash and dash. And the guys didn't want to show up for that, but but it was called A Woman's Work. Might that be a deterrent? And how did you choose that? That's funny. Yeah, I never thought about that. Maybe. So I, it's interesting because A Woman's Work, the title, it was always, that was the first title that I really thought of actually for the mm -hmm. film. I think it's because when I read about Lacey's lawsuit and I talked to Lacey and her attorneys, her employment attorneys, that conversation was centered around this is work. This is unpaid labor. This is wage theft. Mm -hmm. You know, at the heart of everything, mm -hmm. this is wage theft. And this is this work, specific work of cheerleading is part of this huge multi-billion dollar industry and it's being completely undervalued. And so that made me think of the stereotype. This is, oh, that's just women's work, which gets tossed around a lot. I feel like every woman probably has had someone say that to them, whether as a joke or meaning something serious. Okay, you should cook or you should 
clean or whatever, or take care of things that are taken for granted, like housework, childcare, like all these things, care work for elders and family. And I feel like during the pandemic, is it's interesting because all of those things have, people have begun at least a little bit to realize that those things are actually essential. But in doing a lot of research for the film and looking at like second wave feminism and all of those things and and realizing that kind of dialogue around that unpaid labor that in the domestic space has been around for decades. And that was something really that was interesting to dive into. And the fact that my main characters like Lacey and Maria, Lacey, she started off with one daughter and then through this, this, this span of filming, she had two more children and her employment, it was just such a sort of tumultuous relationship with her actual, her work outside of the home in terms of her passion for dance and trying to make a living, trying to make some money to contribute. And it's not just, you know, not just have her husband as a sole breadwinner and in, in then needing to follow what he does and where his job takes him and having the whole fate of the family follow him in in a sense it's just i feel like from the beginning that it was became a metaphor this like devaluation within the workplace of cheerleaders is similar to some of the invisible and devalued work that women all women have to deal with yeah i i worked as a nurse's aide and the guys who worked as orderlies were paid more than us wow and the same thing was true in a hotel i worked as a maid in a hotel and the guys the house the housemen, as they were called, who did nothing but collect the sheets that we took off the beds, were paid right. more than us. And wow. you mentioned the, the, the second wave feminism. So I, I wonder if you could tell a little bit more about that and, and how that impacts your work. Yeah, so I think for, for my team and I, predominantly when we started out making this film, because Lacey's film inspired four other lawsuits that year, that same year, uh -huh. by other cheerleaders across the country, we were really just really interested in following those lawsuits and meeting those other women and trying to trying to fashion like some kind of structure or like story narrative structure around their life and their legal battles. So that was something that we were in the moment trying to document and capture with them. We ended up following Lacey and Maria's from Buffalo. She was a cheerleader for the Buffalo Bills. So they, they became the main characters and we followed another woman in New York who, who danced for the Jets, but unfortunately she didn't really, in the end, she we weren't able to include her full story in the film. But when we started editing the film, which is after we gathered like hundreds of hours of footage, we started to put everything together and assemble sort of the film. That's when we really started, we realized that we really need to do a bunch of research because the other part of it that was missing at that point was archival footage, meaning meaning whether it was footage put out by the NFL or the, or the various teams, whether it was news archival footage or historical archival footage. Maybe a lot of that we wouldn't actually necessarily use in the final film, but we wanted to get the background knowledge for, at least for ourselves, so that we knew that the, these women were fighting for rights that it's not like they just started doing that and no one else was doing that before. This is something that women have been fighting for a really long time. And I think historically it, it, it seemed, and just in the process of even, of even pitching our film, it seemed like the, you know, cheerleading or that kind of work was really left out of the traditional progressive feminist sort of narrative. Because I think a lot of people were very taken aback when we were pitching the film, thinking like, oh, why? That's, 
you know, why don't care about them? Why don't you make a film about their lawyers who are these amazing, like, feminist lawyers who have been working in employment law for 25 years? I'm like, yeah, they're also amazing, but this is a story about how all these different people came together to fight for the same rights. And I think that's, that's what realized more context. So that's when we started doing some research into the different waves of feminism. And of course, that's when, like, through, through the making of the film, the Me Too movement also happened. And we saw more people, more women coming together. All of that kind of found, it trickled its way into the film. Yeah. Yeah. So what occurred to me as I was watching it was also that Gloria Steinem had, years ago, got hired as a Playboy bunny. And yeah. basically worked as a month, uh, for a month in that job. And I went to a conference two years ago now, I guess it was in England, where someone was writing a paper about the Playboy Bunny's response to Gloria Steinem's criticism, because what they talked about was this is work. And that's the attack you came from right from the beginning. These are, as I was watching the, the opening, when it opened, I was like, they're dancers and they're athletes. It's, it takes a lot of energy, power, and muscle to pull off what they're doing. And it's service work and it's entertainment. People in Hollywood do it all the time and nobody goes, ah, what a waste of time. But I hadn't thought of it that way till I saw your film. It like changed, it made me go, oh yeah, gosh, yeah. And because it's based on a sexist view of women's femininity, not to mention sexuality, that might, you know, and I could, I, I thought there would be more criticism in the chat room, which I didn't get to see folks, but what you did is you turned it on its head and said, oh no, this is real work and it has value mm -hmm. and it's not being valued. And somebody's making a F of a lot of money off of it. Yeah. And I think compensation, this gets us back to Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, but yeah, I was going to say in our research, when we were digging into archives, we we're trying to also find some kind of historical precedence where it was this kind of work where it was, as you say, entertainment, athleticism, dance, and also involving sexuality. And we found that in, I think it was in the 1960s, like late 60s in Vegas, a bunch of Las Vegas showgirls actually unionized. Right. So we were able to find like this archival footage of some news coverage of that. We didn't end up, we weren't able to use it in the film, but that was something that was really you know, fascinating to us. And also, I think in Detroit, maybe the Playboy Bunny Club, yes. the waitresses, they're actually unionized too. And they were asking for, it was just really interesting to see they were asking for the same thing, like getting paid for all the hours of work. They were getting fair breaks, getting vacations, like medical, like all of these things that any working person needs so i think i think a lot of the time like when in the process of making our film when we're talking to people they it felt like they were seeing this for the first time or this was something that was so shocking but actually it was very bolstering for us to see that no this is something again that has been going on for so long yes okay. say something that i was curious about that, that really jumped out when i watched it last week when the dc labor film fest showed it which was and i don't know if this was just something you couldn't get into the film or whether it didn't happen, but it was something that folks uh, did talk about in the chat. Were, were there more people who were trying, these are all specific cases of specific cheerleaders who sued, but like in, in our world, people usually reach out and start organizing, right? And start trying to organize a union. 
And so I was curious about, I mean, it winds up, it winds up being this real sort of one person against the NFL as opposed to a bunch of them. And in fact, and you do get into this in the film, a lot of the other cheerleaders turned on them. So I was just curious to hear more about what actually mm -hmm. happened and, and what you could use. Yeah, so, so I think I showed the shorter version of the film, which was like 54 minutes or 55 minutes. The longer version has more goes a little bit more in depth about the history of the Buffalo Jills in the 1990s unionizing. Unfortunately, though, their union efforts were broken because they actually were able to form a union, but the, sp the sponsor, they needed a sponsor to pay for their uniform and different costs because the bills, the Buffalo Bills, refused to do that. So the new incoming sponsor didn't want them to be in a union and just said, if you want us to pay for these things, you can't have a union. So a lot of the original members of the union they formed, they had retired out of the profession. And as the newer members were coming in, they just, they really just wanted to have the opportunity to perform. And so they took, they, they decided to take that deal. And fast forward 20 years, 20 more years, Maria and also five other women who were part of their class action lawsuit you know, brought up these same complaints that they weren't getting paid for game day appearances. They were having to pay for their uniforms. They had to pay up front for calendars that then they were forced to sell. And all of these sort of unsafe work conditions also because they were forced to attend these fundraisers and things and golf tournaments where they had to entertain men. And that was very ancillary to what they wanted to do, which is dance and cheer and do what they love. It's interesting because you saw the effect of the broken union, that the same kind of problems and injustices just kept going until the next wave of women who were brave enough to stand up. And I think part of the problem in terms of just getting an effort to organize or getting enough energy to organize is that there's just so much fear and division mm -hmm. really among the the cheerleaders and that's something that's purposeful it's it's intentional that's the way mm. that this structure really works every everyone who supposedly is like on the, this ladder of power feels like their power is at stake for example the directors the cheer directors they a lot of them were former cheerleaders they, they rose up through the ranks and they're being told by the team, like, okay, your position is tenuous. We may or may not have funding for you or whatever. So then they pass that down onto the the women and just tell them, if you don't like it, we have a thousand other women who would replace you. You have to be the best. You have to be within like two pounds of your weight that you started in the beginning of the season. You have, they have so many rules. They literally have what is called a handbook. And the contents of this handbook is varies across all the different teams, but they all have this handbook, which is like a stringent, like Bible that they must follow of all these rules. And some of them include how to eat food, for example, and what feminine hygiene products to use at certain times, or you should not argue with anyone. And even when you go to the grocery store, you need to look, you need to have full makeup on. That's outside of work. Like when they're just in their day-to-day -day life going to the grocery store to buy groceries. Can I just jump in? At least, isn't that illegal? I think, I'm not a labor lawyer, but I don't think you can, that's that's not work time. I, I bet they can argue that it's just part of keeping the, the, the facade going. And 
I don't know. I'm out. The image, is that what it is, Lee? That it's that you're made, you're always a cheerleader, even when you're not on duty, technically. Well, and this all sounds very much like what the flight attendants used to go through. I see. Well, you had to wear a girdle and they would pinch you to make sure you were wearing a girdle. And waitresses, I think, had the same thing. And it's crazy. It's oppression, women. And it's to divide and, and conquer is what the, the capitalists have been doing for generations. And it's preying, I think it's preying upon traditional female traits, being willing to sacrifice for the greater good. It's like, it's like preying on these characteristics that on their own are fairly positive, right? Without an outside person taking advantage of them. Mm -hmm. But when you have this, you know, corporation taking advantage of these things, it's they're used to keep them in control. Oh yeah, um, and keep them divided. So yeah, it's it, and a lot of the some of the women I I talked to who were against the lawsuit, they were like, "This is not a job. This is something that I love. This is more than a job. It's invaluable to me, and all of these things." And yeah. and just talking about money somehow, or asking for the fact that the lawsuits were asking for money, that was a moral sort of perversion of their original intent and i think that's a big part of you know why like women are ashamed to ask for money or talk about money is because of that kind of prevalent like cultural i don't know trend or yeah it's a really it's a it's i was thinking about that with a goodell commissioner goodell when mm -hmm. he at the beginning of his interview he talks about he's i forget how much he, it was at the time he was making millions and millions of dollars a year right and yeah, like was, 34 to 44 million. Yeah. Right, I mean, after it gets over 20 million, I was. <laughs> <laughs> so he's making 30 plus million dollars a year. And he himself says, Oh, this is, you know, this is great. I love it. And I'm thinking, so he gets this idea of a job that you love, but he gets $33 million a year for a job he loves. But you can't pay people who are also want to do a job that they love. It was to me, it would, there was, I had this real sort of mental problem handling that. I think it's as you pointed out, Lee, it's a devaluation of women's work that is again gone on for generations. And cheerleaders are really an important part of that whole keeping the energy going and keeping the crowds going. And a friend of mine said one time, Martin Luther King said, I'd say that I'm a drum major for peace. And she said, let's say we were cheerleaders for change and calm people for progress. <laughs> but you need somebody who's going, yeah, you can do it. And in this arena where they are making so much money, there's no reason why these women shouldn't be paid, except women's work is devalued. Taking care yeah. of them, cleaning homes, all of that, and much less being a powerhouse athlete to show you're behind literally on television and get them, garner them fans and money and, and, and sponsors and promoters who are making also a gazillion dollars off of it. Exactly. And I I think it goes back to also women's sports too. It, oh, yes. yeah, 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 the, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the sports world is so, in general, such a male dominated space. And it's also a space where masculinity is really forged in, in many ways. It's like that kind of hyper masculinity is really performed in the world of sports. And so when you have women who are trying to break in or to try to be acknowledged or recognized, it's like, insane <laughs> the challenge that it is and for female athletes who who are like on the one hand are not taken seriously for their athletic ability but on the other hand they're expected to look feminine 
So if they're too masculine, oh, like Serena Williams, or people are criticizing her. But then you have the other hand, like for ESPN or Sports Illustrated or different magazines, oh, we want to have the, the women athletes pose in certain ways that are like attractive to men. So it's so many different double standards and what is qualifies as a sport and what qualifies as an athlete is determined by a male standard. And so they have to really come up against that. And I think right now, though, I feel like more and more women are understanding that we need to talk about it and we need to come together to talk about it to make to make this different. And I think that's really encouraging to see that, especially in the context of cheerleading. I feel this year, especially since the film has come out, more cheerleaders have spoken out about these problems and more women are demanding, okay, wait, no, this is, we're athletes and we deserve to have a say in what the future of our industry. And like you mentioned for so long, cheerleaders have been molded to what a male, what the teams feel like it would be attractive to male audiences. Obviously they embody that extreme femininity, the, the sexiness, the glamour, all those things, but it's like, the women, obviously, any cheerleader I talk to, they love it. They love the uniform. They love being out there performing. Like, it's amazing. But they could all, they, they're also like, if I had to dance, like, dressed in a cow outfit or whatever, I would. Or, like, in a nun outfit. I don't really care. It's, it's just performing and dancing. And so it's so much creativity also. And they have years and years of dance background in all sorts of different styles of dance. And also cheer and stunt work. So it's like the richness and the entertainment value of what they do could be expanded so much if they were able to actually have a say in it. But right now, everything is just, oh, we want you to be like this. Oh, okay, you're complaining about sexual harassment. Okay, we're going to bring in some guys and make you wear baggy clothes. So that's really like the answer right now for these teams. Oh, yeah. And the, the whole power dynamics, you know, power can see something like a man. And also that power is to women what beauty is to men. And so that dynamic is working there. And I can understand. It was like when, you know, people, they interviewed the Playboy bunnies that were him. They all said, no, no, this is my work. I do this. And you get affirmation for it. There people go, oh, yeah, you look fabulous, great. Yeah, yeah. But you didn't get no money for it. <laughs> that was my, 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 my last question. Chris might have another one. What was the learning from this? And again, what's been the impact? You started talking about like how people are responding. What are people getting back from it? And what did you learn? Wow. Yeah. What did I learn? I feel like I grew up in the space of making (laughs) this film. So before this film, I had made a short documentary at my film school thesis. That was the only thing I had really made before. And then In 2014, I started this documentary and then another feature-length documentary that uh, was wrapped up earlier in 2017. So this film, A Woman's Work, just took really long time to finish. Part of it was the lawsuits were just, I didn't know, like when I first came into it, I'm like, okay, I want to follow this legal battle. I did not expect it to take longer than a year let's say, (laughs) I don't know. Like in my naive mind of, okay, wait, they're asking for minimum wage. Why would they take this long? You know, like right now, Maria's lawsuit, the Jill's lawsuit against the Bills and some of the other sponsors, it's still going on. It still hasn't finished. So I didn't expect those legal battles to be so protracted. And I, I also didn't realize that I, was, I happened to drop in on these women's lives and meet these women at a very interesting sort of transitional 
point in their lives as they're really almost like the aftermath of their career because they were basically blacklisted and they were not able to go back and it, so it became more about like how is their identity going to shift like how are they going to see themselves differently and how do they start to see the world differently and it became about them like learning this knowledge this self-knowledge and then also seeing how what their place is in this bigger picture and that was extremely rewarding because I feel like for me that's also a similar journey that I went through where I came to have a better understanding of myself. I, I came to have a better understanding of my skills as a filmmaker and my, my vision and what I love, like what I love about this job, but also what is problematic about <laughs> my job and also what is problematic about our industry of documentary filmmaking. And I think I was also very fortunate in these years to be part of these groups that started within the documentary world of <clears throat> filmmakers coming together, filmmakers of color, women of color coming together to really advocate for ourselves. So I think that's been a really interesting journey to witness and be a part of. And I think it was really hard, I think, for so long with this film to get people to see it, to be like, oh, okay, I get what you're trying to do. But now, finally, when it's out and it's finished, People are finally getting it. Okay, yeah, this is what you're trying to do. Okay, I get it now. And it's been really in inspiring and heartening to see, again, all these different people coming together around the film or somehow like some even small connection with the film. Okay, so we were able to have this lawmaker talk to this attorney, talk to this cheerleader, talk to this woman sports journalist, talk to this other female athlete. Like all of these people coming to together to talk about and discuss these really important issues that's going to shape their future. And it's not like, you know, I necessarily or the film or whatever wants to be necessarily part of that. But the fact that we made those connections and started off these conversations, I think that's really rewarding. And I think that's just an example to me of what film can do. And again, that's re-inspired me in terms of my work. Thank you. Chris? We were just about to wrap up, but I, I just uh, want to pick up on, on uh, something that you had mentioned about, about you know, that there's, I think, one, one to 2% female directors. And I think I'd seen that somewhere, but I still find that in 2021, that, that seems ridiculously low. And I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts. And you mentioned that there's other groups forming around this. I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's that that one to two percent is a Hollywood statistic for a lot of fiction films, but for documentary films, it's slightly it's better. I think maybe there's I can't I don't remember the exact statistic, but it, it's actually much better, like maybe ten or fifteen percent or something like that. However, it's still very much a problem in terms of racial makeup. A lot of that are white women and. There's just been a lot of also discussion about sustainability. Like who are the people who are able to do this work and sustain a career when, you know, the funding for this work is so difficult, especially when you're coming at it from an independent spirit. If you're right now in, in the documentary world, there's Netflix, there's Amazon, there's all these different networks making premium content for their platforms and they're spending tons of money on it but who are the people they're working with right now there's just been a reckoning especially last year of asking 
for accountability here. If you're supposedly all about diversity, you're supposedly all about racial justice, but where is the action? Let's look at the numbers here. Let's look at breakdown of who you're actually working with and hiring to tell these stories. One of the groups that I'm part of is called the Asian American Documentary Network, which was started like in 2016, actually, I think. So like basically two years after I started making a woman's work and it's just grown um, year after year to become this community of Asian American uh, documentary filmmakers. And I'm um, also part of Brown Girls Doc Mafia, which is another group. It's predominantly on Facebook, but it's just, it's all women of color and non-binary non filmmakers who just, again, come together to support each other, talk about the industry, organize impromptu actions to take. And then I'm also part of this other group called Independent Documentary Directors, which just started recently. And the DGA, Directors Guild of America, exists, has existed for a really long time. But again, it's been really difficult for smaller films, independent films, especially documentaries, to be part of that organization because it doesn't follow the traditional sort of industry distribution production pathways and so i'm not really there's been a lot of talk of okay should we form a, an independent union should we try to join the dga or somehow have like how can we get you know better protection for for ourselves and our work and there's no ready answer right now for that but it's people we're talking and we're getting together so wow it's a great film thank you so thank you. much we thank you for this is women's history month you brought us a piece of history that uh, is totally overlooked and neglected and brought their stories for it. And that's what's important because our stories are left out of the history books. Nobody's going to tell it. Nobody's going to tell your story like you can tell your story. And I really look forward to the next film. I And thank you, Chris, because I hope we can stay connected. I think that the Coalition Labor Union Women would be a great place to showcase films by really look forward to the next film. And so let's stay in touch. It's the beginning okay, sounds of great. friendship, I think. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, right. Sweet. Thank you. Appreciate it.